0: So please turn with me to Mark 12, 13 through 34. We heard these passages read this morning, our sermon text. Mark 12, 13 through 34 is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. As Will mentioned up front, here in the month of January, we are embarking on a series that focuses on the image of God and the sanctity of human life. This morning, I have the privilege of, of laying the foundations of sorts for this series. So, my goal today is to focus on the topic more generally. And then, in the coming weeks, you will hear from each of our other elders, from, from, from Pastor Cody, from Pastor I John, and from Pastor Will, how this essential doctrine to our Christian faith can be applied more specifically in our lives. That's what this series is going to look like. You'll hear from from each one of us this doctrine, like all of the essential doctrines of our faith is rich and evergreen and that that means no matter what age we find ourselves in, the reality that God created us humans in his image speaks to whatever the prevailing whatever the prevailing values and virtues of our Fickle culture are for the day, whether the issue be just basic human rights, whether it be abortion, sexual identity, human sexuality, racial reconciliation, artificial intelligence, how we relate to the environment, politics in general, human trafficking, pornography, whatever issue you can come up with, this list could go on and on, and the reality that we are created in God's image has something to say to that. So before we dive into our text, uh, let's, let's sum up, as, as we heard a little bit this morning from Will, the basic situation for man. We will do this by considering the purpose of man, the problem of man, and the solution of man before we dive into our text. So perp- the purpose of man. God created man in his image. Now what does that mean? Well, the Scripture makes clear to us, and the Church has historically understood this to mean that that humanity is God's is the crown of God's creation. In God, in man, God made specially man to reflect, represent, and be in relationship with Him. This is this is how we've theologians have often understood this: to reflect, represent, and be in relationship with Him. So first, we reflect God. We reflect God in our whole being, body, and soul. God has endowed humanity with certain attributes, gifts, capacities that are superior to the rest of creation, that reflect something of God's nature. We further reflect God in that we were created to be in loving community. God made man and woman, unity in diversity, just as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God Three persons, unity and diversity. We reflect God by our capacities, gifts, attributes that he's endowed us with. We also represent God. We represent God to the rest of creation, not only in how we reflect him, but in our purpose to exercise dominion over creation in such a way that we advance God's glory. We are God's ambassadors. He made us to represent him. But this purpose to represent God goes hand in hand with our special place and capacity in creation to know and worship God. Therefore, God made us to be in relationship with him. God specially created man to be in loving covenant relationship with himself, to know, love, and worship him. And from that relationship, be an ambassador for his glory. This means that man cannot know who he is meant to be. Man cannot be the image of God as he should be unless he knows God and is in loving relationship with him. We cannot know who we are unless we know who God is. So the nature of the image of God means that God created man to reflect himself. God created man to represent himself, but The essential purpose is this. God created man to know him, be loved by him, and be in loving relationship with him. In this sense, God created man, every human, man and woman, to be worship leaders. You are the image of God made to worship God and display him to all of creation. But there's a problem. The problem is... Sin entered the world at the fall, and the image of God became marred. It wasn't fully destroyed, but it was disfigured and marred and stained. In in what way? Well, man's relationship with God was severed. So now, fallen man still reflects God in his capacities and attributes, but now, rather than representing God as he is, man in his fallenness and sinfulness misrepresents God. This is the grotesque nature of sin, the very gifts God has given us that are from him, meant to reflect him, we use to assault and misrepresent him and call others into that assault. It's a bad problem. But God has offered a solution. In the gospel, God offers us once again his perfect image in his son Jesus. We heard We'll point this out. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. And through his grace in Jesus, God conforms us back into the image of himself. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the solution. Jesus offers us back our restored image of God, who we are meant to be. And we see this in our passage this morning. Remember, where we are in Mark, Jesus is making more and more clear to those watching and observing that he is the promised Messiah. The secret that he has kept under wraps for so long is becoming clearer and clearer, and it will finally and fully be revealed at the cross. We cannot know Jesus as the Messiah without knowing Jesus the Messiah crucified on the cross. And Jesus, most recently, has just entered into Jerusalem in a prophetic way that points to him as the promised king that everyone has been waiting for, and he promptly used that authority to cleanse out the temple and point that God's people indeed deserve judgment. And he exercised his divine authority. And even though he is the rightful king, the cornerstone on which God will build his new spiritual temple as we saw last week. The religious leaders of the day who have been waiting for the Messiah reject him and they are threatened by his authority and they seek to destroy him. This brings us To where we are now, our passage this morning is made up of a series of three distinct interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders. Three different episodes that revolve around the theme of his authority. Why lump these together? Well, Mark gives us a signal. He begins and ends this unit describing Jesus as one who speaks the truth of who God is. In verse 14, we see the Pharisees say, you truly teach. You teach according to the truth, the way of God. And in verse 32, we see the final scribes say, you truly have said God is one. Mark is framing this series with this theme of truth. Therefore, each one of these episodes, in each one of these episodes, Jesus reveals something of who God is. And as a result, we can determine then who we, man, are and who we should be as his image. Each one of these episodes has the same structure. It has a question and an answer. Each one of the religious leaders asks Jesus a question and Jesus gives an answer. So we'll take them all together in turn. Finally, as we think of the image of God by looking... At Jesus, what we see is the perfection of the image of God, man as he should be. So we will do that as well. Look with me first at our passage, Mark 12, 13 through 34. We've heard it fully read, and so we will consider it naturally in three separate episodes. Episode 1, verses 13 through 17, we see the God of man. This is Jesus versus the Pharisees and the Herodians. In episode 2, verses 18 through 27, we see the God of life. This is Jesus versus the Sadducees. And then in episode 3, verses 28 through 34, we see the God of love. And this is Jesus and the scribe. Now, the main message we want to take away from this sermon this morning is this. Be the image of God you were created to be by rendering yourself to God, by entrusting your life to God, and by loving God only and wholly with your whole being. Be the image of God you were created to be by rendering yourself to God, entrusting your life to God, and loving God fully. So being the image of God in this way is only possible through Jesus, the perfect image-bearer. And so let's look at him in our first episode, verses 13 through 17, Jesus versus the Pharisees and the Herodians. Here we see the God of man. So the Pharisees and Herodians, we've seen them together before. They both have different agendas, we've noted, back way back when, they, uh, when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, and there they sought to destroy Jesus. so they both want to destroy Jesus even though they are separate groups, have different ways of thinking they're common the common thing that's bringing them together is they want to destroy Jesus and they're sent by they we see in verse 13, and that is the chief priests, the scribes and the elders who want to destroy Jesus as well in 1118 after Jesus cleared the temple, they sought a way to destroy him. And so they do this by sending the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they come hoping to trap. Uh, Think of of a hunter with his trap, trying to hunt down and kill. That's the image here. They're trying to trap Jesus by asking him what they believe is an impossible question. So they first attempt to... uh, falsely flatter Jesus by stating his reputation. Now, they're not flattering him to butter him up. They're setting him up so they can knock him down. And what they say, ironically, is totally true. They say he has a reputation for speaking the truth of God and not being swayed by man's opinion. He simply speaks the truth of God. And after setting him up, they then Come at him with this question, verse fourteen: Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they ask, "Is it lawful?" That means according to God's law, the Old Testament, what Moses gave us. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Why do they think this is such a uh, this question is such an ace up their sleeve, like such a whopper? Well, because if Jesus submits. To Caesar's authority, this pagan king, what kind of authority does he really have? What kind of Messiah does that? But if he pronounces that paying taxes to Caesar is unlawful, now he's guilty of sedition, arrest, death, even. So the real question they're asking is this. Who is the king? Who is in charge? Who is the rightful ruler? Is it you? Is it Caesar? Our Messiah? Whoever he may be, because we don't think it's you. And their question reveals that they have a skewed view of man and of God. And Jesus' answer points this out. Look at verses 15 through 17. Jesus first answers them, or Mark lets us know before Jesus answers that Jesus is aware of their hypocrisy, uh, they, these Pharisees see themselves in a different category than others, in a different category than Caesar's. They see themselves as image bearers of God, opposed to their pagan ruler Caesar and this radical Jesus. They don't see that they rightfully deserve the same judgment that they No, Caesar does. And they don't see that God is a God who has sent his son in order to restore all men, themselves included, and their pagan rulers, if they would but return to God. The point comes out in Jesus' object lesson. Jesus asks for coins, a denarius, and they bring him one. And he says this in verses 16 and 17, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesars, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So first notice this word likeness here in the, in the, in, in the Greek. It's the same word for image. Whose image is this, Jesus asks, stamped on the coin? It's Caesar's. So Jesus says, render then, give it back to him, return it to him. Return to Caesar what is his. The point is this, the stamped image of Caesar identifies that coin as his. He is the rightful owner of it. It is his. In God's sovereignty, that coin is his. And likewise, render to God the things that are his. What are those things? Everything God created everything. God owns it all. But let's stick with Jesus' object lesson here. If the image of Caesar being on the coin indicates that the coin is his, then the specific point Jesus is making is the same point he has been making through his whole ministry. You are the image of God, and his kingdom is coming. Return to God. He is your God. They ask, who is the king, who is the ruler, who is the owner? And Jesus says, God, he is the God of man. He is the God of you, and he is the God of Caesar. And all must turn to him. Render yourself to him. Now, there could be, we could make points here uh, regarding earthly authority and how and when Christians respond to, and certainly that's, Worthy to dive into here. But we're going to focus mainly on this main point that Jesus says to the Pharisees, God is man's God. He has put his image on man. He has stamped it onto man. Therefore, render yourself to him. The same for us. What does that look like? We'll look at Jesus The perfect image. While the Pharisees offer a picture of the marred image, caring about man's opinion and how they are viewed in the eyes of their fellow man, worried about earthly kingdoms and authorities, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And by their own mouth, they say, You don't fear man, you are not swayed by appearances. You operate for the audience of one, God. True words spoken from these marred image bearers. Jesus is the perfect image of God because he has fully rendered himself to God. To be used in his services. To not fear man and man's opinion, not to be swayed by man, but to operate and live for the audience of his God alone. Fully. Owned and submitted by God. This is the perfect image bearer of God, a man rendered, a man who has given himself to God and God alone. So here in episode one, we see that God is the God of man, therefore, man should render himself completely to God. That's what the image of God looks like. But to truthfully teach who God is and to render yourself to Him as Jesus does here, you must know and you must trust Him which is a problem for the Sadducees in our very next episode. Look at verses 18 through 27, the God of life, Jesus versus the Sadducees. Here in verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question in order to challenge his authority again. Now, the Sadducees, we haven't seen them yet. They're a different group of religious political leaders, and they're at odds even with the Pharisees and scribes and Many theological points, one of which is that they don't affirm the resurrection, as Mark tells us here. And that's the, the final resurrection, when, when man and, and the dead are raised unto eternal life or unto eternal death. They don't believe that. And they also only believe and only held that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, were... God's scripture given to man. That's the Sadducees. That's who they are. So they come to Jesus hoping to justify their position regarding the resurrection by showing its absurdity in their minds. And they do so by setting it up, as we heard this morning, with a scenario of marriage. According to the law of Moses, a man was responsible It's called the law of Leverett marriage, to marry his dead brother's widow and raise offspring. Well, here in this hypothetical situation, a woman has been married to seven different brothers, never bearing offspring, and they all die. And so from that scenario, they ask this question, verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, the wife and the brothers, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. But the real question is this, how can you believe The resurrection, it's absurd. How is that even possible? To restore life as it was, it only complicates things. This question reveals that they have a profoundly skewed view of who man is and who God is. And Jesus' answer points this out in verses 24 through 27. What his answer points out is they don't know man's purpose or the God who made them. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, do not know, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So wrong here could better be translated deceived, missed, misled. Jesus says they're completely off base. They are deceived. And what's the reason? Two reasons. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. The scriptures reveal who who God is, and Jesus has been displaying the power of God all throughout his, his ministry. And Jesus will give examples then of what he means by how they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he will first look at power. Jesus says the power of God is like this in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. In heaven. So this points to God's power. There's something wrong with their little the Sadducees' little marriage scenario here. They think resurrection life is the same as earthly life. It's just being raised to back to what it was. But in the resurrection, God is not raising the dead to an a life that is equivalent to what life was on earth. It is better. In the resurrection, humans are made new. They are like the angels in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that they become angels, which has been a common way to think of people who die. They become an angel. That's not what Jesus is saying. No, it means that in the resurrection, they will be, what he says, like angels in at least two ways, location and time. In the resurrection, we will be like angels in that we will be with God in his very presence. And in the resurrection, we will be like angels in that we will be eternal. No longer temporary in our bodies. In the resurrection, God is raising us to something new. We will be with him forever as his sons, as his bride here's where marriage comes in. Earthly marriage is a picture of the heavenly reality. When the heavenly reality becomes a reality, the picture is no longer needed. Now, this can often elicit from us fearful reactions. We, we, say, we say, and I, say, I myself say, my, my spouse, that's the most significant relationship I have on this earth. I don't want to lose that. This is the most important relationship to me, knows me best, and, and I know the the, the memories, the, the, the things we have together, the things we've shared, the family we've raised. I don't want to lose that. But that's not what's happening here. You're not losing anything. You're gaining. We're gaining everything. In the resurrection, we will be more perfectly united with our spouses than ever before, relationship perfected. In the resurrection, we'll be more perfectly united with fellow man than ever before. You think of your relationship with your spouse on earth. You have that one relationship. Now, amplify that to everyone. And in the resurrection, we will be perfectly united to our heavenly husband, God, more than ever before. Our earthly relationships in Christ in the resurrection, are not being demoted. They're being elevated to something we can't even fathom. You think of the best aspects of your relationship with your spouse. Infinity. Infinity beyond what that is, is what the resurrection is. totally new. This is the power of God that the Sadducees do not know. And Jesus will now consider the scriptures that they do not know. Jesus says to them, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but the living. You are quite wrong. So the passage, of course, that Jesus is referring to here is is Moses at the burning bush. When God reveals who he is, speaks his divine name to Moses, and, and he says he is Yahweh, that is, I am, I will be who I will be. God simply is. He depends on nothing. He is the essence of life. And therefore, those who are his, those who are in him, Those who worship him as their God, they too have life. That's Jesus' point here. God says that he remains the God of people even when their earthly life has finished. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, hundreds of years before God is speaking to Moses here. But nonetheless, God says, I am their God. They are alive in him because he is the God of life and the God of the living Jesus ends his answer by telling the Sadducees the same thing he said at the beginning, except he elevates it. You are quite wrong. You are so deceived. This is so instructive for us. And why is theology important? Because here we see that the Sadducees' wrong notion about the resurrection did not end there. Their wrong conclusion on this one doctrinal Reality pointed to a devastating reality. They did not know God. They didn't even know him. Not knowing the resurrection meant that they did not even know the God they claimed to know. Therefore, they don't know who they are. Man was created to be eternally with God. They don't know this. They're not seeing that. Man is not temporary. There there will be a resurrection. And God is the God who has power to raise man to new eternal life. God is the God of life, and you were made to live. Therefore, man should entrust his life to God and live to him. Look at the perfect image of, of God in Jesus. While the Sadducees here represent marred, the marred image of man, they don't know the God, they find Life in. They assault him rather with false doctrine, slander him. They do not entrust their life to God. But here, Jesus, the perfect image of God, with every interaction he has, with these Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with, with the chief priests and elders, with every interaction he has, he takes a step closer and closer and closer to his death. Yet he and trust his life to the God of life who gives resurrected life, not being a slave to death, not fearing death. He knows God and his power. If you want a practical way to grow in the image of God, we see it right here. How do you be the image of God? How do you grow in it? You know God in the scriptures. You know God in the power of God displayed through the life and person of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God, entrusting his life to God and living to him alone. Now, to know and trust God in this way is to know God's love and to love him. And so we will see in our next episode, episode 3, verses 28 through 34, the God of love, Jesus and the scribe. Now, here in this third and final episode... We see Jesus interact with a scribe. We've seen him interact with scribes before. Now, every other episode, I've called Jesus Verses. But, but here, the, I've called this Jesus and the scribe because in many ways, this scribe seems genuine and, and authentic. Though we still see a few hints that he fancies himself as an authority over Jesus, especially when he gives him his approval. Jesus will one-up him with his authority by giving the final approval. But in many ways, we see for the first time what seems like a very real question. What's that question? Verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? In all of the law, all of our Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, the histories, our poetic literature... The Psalms and, and all the writings, in all the prophets, in all the law, what's the greatest? What's the most prominent? Number one commandment. Jesus doesn't hesitate. Look at his answer in verses twenty-nine through thirty-one. Jesus answered: The most important is: hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus points to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. There God calls his people, uh, Israel, to live in the love that he has shown them by loving him. And what's the reason? The reason is because he, God, is one And because he is the Lord their God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So that's the reason. It's because of who God is. Let's look at the first reason. God is one. They should love him in a way that reflects who he is. He is one. Now this means he's the only God. There is no other God that love should be given to. He's the one God. But, but notice the whole commandment. You are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You could, you could also translate that, love God from your whole heart, from your whole mind, from your whole soul, from your whole strength. You are to love God with all of your being. You don't only, you don't only love God, you wholly love. Love God, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy with everything you are, love God. This is because God is undivided in himself. Our affection and love for him should be undivided because he is undivided. One God, perfect in his affection, even for himself. God cannot give his love fully to another Because if he did, he would be an idolater. He loves himself perfectly, wholly, undivided. And in that love, he has invited us to love him. Not for anything he would gain, but for what we will gain. Joy in him. And second, they should love him then. Not only because he is the one God, but because he is the Lord, their God. Remember, this command it was first given to Israel in the Old Testament. It was after God had redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He had made them his own. He invited them into loving relationship with him. They are to love God because he first loved them and made himself their God, and made them his people by his grace alone. So they love not only him, but they love in a way that reflects who he is. The one God who perfectly loves himself extended that love to his creatures. So the love of God is such that it shows love to others and invites others in. This is why Jesus gives the second commandment unsolicited, From Leviticus 19.18, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. God, even though he is undivided in his love for himself, has no need of anyone, chooses and desires to give his love to us and bring us into relationship with him. And so the man's first response then is to love God. And the secondary response is out of that love to love others because this reflects who God is. So the scribe announces his approval. You're a right teacher. And just at the beginning, he notes, as we noted at the beginning, he says, You are speaking truly about who God is. And then he says something pretty profound. He says, to love, one, to love God and to love one's neighbor is greater than all of the sacrifices. And this is profound because, because indeed, the reason these sacrifices are in place is because we don't love God with all our heart, with all our soul and all our mind. We don't love our neighbor. That's why those sacrifices were even there, to point them to this reality. And so Jesus... Gives this man his approval and says, Oh, you're, you think you're approving me? No, I'm telling you, you are close to the kingdom of God. He gives him this loving approval from the king, a nudge down this gospel road. The sacrificial system was in place because we do not image God as we should. Episode one, we do not render ourselves to God. We rebel and run for Him, run from Him, and instead look to the approval of man. Episode two, we do not entrust our life to Him. Rather, we hold on to it for everything we have and try to live for get every ounce of life we can here, even if it means compromising our values, compromising our morals, sinning against ourselves and against others. Because we're slaves to death. We fear death. What's going to happen when I die? Live for now. We don't entrust our lives to God. Episode 3. We do not love God wholly. We love him partially. We split our loves and divide it amongst other things. Other little gods here. Idols here. This here. Mainly ourselves. And forget about loving our neighbors. (laughs) Even when we love them, we're just loving ourselves, right? Right? But God, in the gospel, has this to say to you and me. Where you were not the perfect image of God, the perfect image of me that I created you to be, my son, Jesus, is. Jesus, in his life and death, rendered himself to God alone. And we see this perfectly at the cross. When you and I couldn't, he rendered himself to God so that we could be given back to God. Jesus entrusted his life and lived to God alone when you and I didn't and couldn't. He trusted God even unto death with his life, knowing that God would raise him. Because Jesus entrusted his life to God at the cross, you and I have life. And Jesus... Loved God only and wholly when you and I didn't, and at the cross, he loved God unto death and loved us unto death so that you could be in the love of God again. In the gospel of Jesus, you are being conformed into what God created you to be, the image of his beloved son, his very image Therefore, be the image of God by applying what we see here. First, God is the God of man. Now, we're looking at more of the general applications here. Like I said, in the coming weeks, we will see more specific ones. But what we draw from this text is God is the God of man. Therefore, he is the God of you. He is the God of me. Surrender your life completely to him. He is your maker and king. He owns you. And out of that surrender, out of that rendering yourself to him, render yourself to others in service, not in fearful of needing approval of them, but as loving them to point them and reflect who God is and what he has done and what Christ has done. Render your life to God. Be the image of God by rendering your life to him. And serving others. Second, God is the God of life. Therefore, he is the God of your life. So be the image of God that he created you to be. By entrusting your life to God and living to him. You entrust your life to him. Knowing that death does not have the final say. This creates bold faith. You are made for eternal life with God, and the power of God is to raise you, and we see it in Christ's resurrection. Do not try to preserve your life in this world. Do not live for now. Entrust your life to God, knowing He is your life. And then out of that, give life to others. Look at the perfect image of God. Not only did He entrust His life to God, but He gave life. Human life is sacred. We do not harm or take our own. We do not harm or take from others. We are givers of life. The image of God means that we give life. And third, God is the God of love. Therefore, he is the God of your love. So be the image of God that he created you to be by loving God wholly and only. Do not divide your love. Do not love partially. And realize when you do this imperfectly, which you will, I will. We just remember that he first loved us perfectly in Christ. And this is our assurance. You love because he first loved you. And then out of that. We give love to others, Consider the perfect image of God in Jesus, who gave love to others, invited others into the love that he knew. Our love for God spills over into into love for others. So be the image of God that he made you to be by loving God alone and holy and loving others. And this is at the heart of what it means to be made in God's image you were made to reflect and represent God, to be his ambassadors. When creation sees you, when creation sees humanity, they are, creation is seeing something of who God is. And at the heart of that reflection and representation is this. You were made to be in loving relationship with God, to be loved by him and to love him and to display that love to others. Here in this local body, we see the image of God. Image of God in loving community together. Unity and diversity reflects who God is. So remember this. This is who you are. You are not simply, I've been making it a point for the most part, I might have said it a few times, to not say we're simply bearing the image of God. We're not simply bearing the image of God in the sense of it's just part of who we are or it's just an an aspect of us or it's just an attribute. It is who you are. You are an image of God. And in Christ, that image is being perfected once again. In Christ, God is the God of you, he is the God of your life, and he is the God of your love. In Christ, and in Christ only, you are who God made you to be. Let's pray.